So, as a kid, I vividly remember just looking out of the windows of our house and waiting for the mail to arrive. Um, Maybe you can relate. My sister Kelly was always the first one who would go out the door. She'd sprint and grab the mail from the box, uh, page through it on the way in, and then just spill it. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. My guess is that most of you have received mail or email of some sort from someone you didn't know before. That's normal. Usually, it's not very exciting. And sometime along the way, little Nick noticed this pattern of disappointment where he would always get excited for the mail and then bills and ads from strangers and companies would just keep rolling in without anything important or personal. So come back with me to the 60s in A.D., where we find a church gathered in the little city of Colossae. So the Colossian Christians, they were doing great. They were walking in faith, expressing love for the saints, and living with great hope. But the pressure was rising, the heat was turning up, and threatening to turn the members away. One day, uh, they received a letter from a man they've never met before, who introduces himself as Paul, who is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And normally, mail you get from people you don't know isn't that interesting, but this is certainly different. So the people, imagine them with me being in the room, gathering close to listen. They hear that this brother has not ceased to pray for them. They hear him telling of the resurrected and the reigning Jesus And he shows in this letter that no part of the human existence remains untouched by our loving and liberating high priest. And then he shows that we're invited to live now as though that new creation which the priest is bringing is here. We're invited to live now as though Christ is reigning. And this morning, we're going to pour over Colossians 1. We're going to start at verse 15. So go ahead and turn there. If you haven't already, I chose to preach this text today because I believe it tells of Christ's supremacy in very clear and very strong words. In preparation for a couple weeks now, I've prayed that God would today just fulfill the mission of what this church is already doing. That he would cause us to know him as he is, witness his glory, and then in so doing be transformed according to the renewal of our hearts and minds in Christ. All right? Cool. So let's get to work. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Let's read it. This is the word of God. Eyes on the page with me here. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all these, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for in him. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, 
who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and in which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess our neediness. We are a needy people, and we need you. We also confess the uh, sufficiency of Scripture in knowing that it is enough, that every time your word goes, it brings back exactly what you intend, and we cling to that right now. Lord, we need you. Please do far more in us than we are able to ask or imagine. Holy Spirit, please intercede for us right now, this second, and please make this truth that is in your word just explicit and applicable uh, tomorrow on Monday. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's do this. So, first of all, I think it's really helpful to have a finger on that word preeminent, right? Some of your Bibles have it, like mine, where it says uh, the preeminence of Christ. It just means first in everything. That, that's what it is. It's a big word, first in everything. And I hope today that what we see in this text is that the mess and the joy of everyday life is really where the preeminence of Christ plays out. So we're going to hear it big picture now. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, it's going to become personal, okay? So, in the text, verses 15 through 20, they, they form kind of of a messianic hymn is what we can call it. It's a, it's a song, poem, a hymn to the Messiah, which is the promised deliverer, okay? And this text is explicitly and unashamedly and even offensively about Jesus. It's about worshiping him. And we're going to talk about this. We're going to say, who is Jesus? We're going to look at that question. Who is Jesus? Because that's what Paul is going to lay out for us. And with that in mind, read verse 15 with me. It says, so we're looking 15. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. Okay. Gotta love starting out with a paradox, right? So Paul says, image of the invisible God. So <laughs> we're, we're looking at like a picture, a likeness, a representation of the invisible God. Now, so that means, that means those who experience Jesus, those who see him, experience God, the Father. They experience God. We're going we're gonna to circle around that idea for a minute so we can, we can really feel the text. Okay. Let's, let's look at this piece to the puzzle. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all the earth. And did it. God created man and woman in his image. He charged them to fill the earth. Why? Why did he do that? Well, I would argue that it's because we're, we're created to show or, or to manifest the glory of God in the world. Think with me. The Mona Lisa, that painting, calls attention to two things. We have the woman in the picture and we have the creator good old Leonardo da Vinci himself. And the statue of David calls attention to two things. David, the image, and Michelangelo, the creator. 
See where we're going here? People call attention to Jesus, the image, and to Jesus, the creator. Okay? So in art, making a picture is a thing of beauty. And according to design, people are wonderful because they're made in the image of God. God is far transcendent. He's far better than us. And yet there's some sort of resemblance or analogy between him and us. So, like him, we're created to be intelligent, thinking, moral persons. And there's some capacity to mirror, to show God's holiness. That's our job in Genesis 1. To fill, to keep the earth so the Lord's holiness, his beauty, is found everywhere, okay? And then, the fall. Man's collective, total rebellion stains that picture. And we often feel how bad sin is from uh, the, the damage that it does person to person. And we know that the consequences of sin can be very painful in all sorts of ways. But we also see in the text that we can't understand the seriousness of sin unless we understand the holiness of God. Seeing how great and how good God is. So that word holiness, let's look at it, has two meanings which work together to give us a good understanding. First, we've got otherness, which shows that God is profoundly different He's profoundly better than his creation and that he's set apart from all others. He's other. And second, we have purity, which shows that God is completely perfect. He's unalterably and finally good. There's no evil mixed in. So God is holy, he is majestic, and he is good. So we need to take sin seriously. The reason every sin is a problem is that big or small, it slanders God. Since we're made in his image, when we do evil, it denies his goodness, right? That's a sort of blasphemy where we as humans are putting ourselves in the place of God. So we see that, we know that that we have fallen short of God's glory. We failed to live in a way that shows his holiness. We failed. We, We will fail. But Jesus did not. And this is Colossians 1.15. It says that those who see or experience Jesus see God. That's what we were supposed to do, right? But he is the image of the invisible God. He lives up to the job. He's the perfect man. And he's not just that, is he? No. In the second half of the verse, we read that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Okay? So back for a good chunk of history, the firstborn son in any given family would inherit special rights uh, and kind of privileges, and then they would have certain responsibilities to go along with that, right? So we can only imagine what a monarch's son, so that is a prince, would receive. But any firstborn son had privileges within the family and culture. And naturally, the inheritance size would be determined by the wealth of the family. So, how much wealth does Jesus' family have? Think about that. Over how much does his father, the king, reign? What's his inheritance going to be? 
For by him all things were created. See that? In heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things. They're created through him and for him. He is the perfect man, but he wasn't created. He was the one doing the creating. John 1 says that he was in the beginning with God, and precisely all things were made through him. So point two, Jesus is the creator. As Leonardo with the Mona Lisa and Michelangelo with David, so is Christ with what? All things. All things. So even setting aside the fact that Christ has purchased all things as the redeemer of creation, as the perfect man who endured suffering and was found true, we must also consider the fact that he is God with rights as God. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting that he, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, God the Son, perfect through suffering. So, not that Jesus was imperfect, but that as he lived life in flesh, through full obedience, it was shown. His full obedience was shown, and he was made the perfect sacrifice for sins. Again, Hebrews 2, this time 17, says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations, to intercede, and to advocate for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So in Colossians, Paul is telling this church, hey, this Jesus, our our suffering Savior, shares one identity with the Creator God. And Christian, do you know what what that means? This is good. Let's, Let's listen to what other Christians, other saints have said, okay? Soak in it. Charles Spurgeon. I think we're going to throw these on the screen. Spurgeon says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of a devastating pestilence. The fall of sear leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Okay, so that's it's big. It's a lot. Abraham Kuyper says, There is not a square inch in the entire of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Praise God. Right? And then I, I hold tightly to what Scott Hubbard says. Let me read this for you. He says, Suffering can thwart our Savior's sovereign rule as soon as the sun flies from its course or the seasons don't come or the molecules stop hearing the word of him who upholds the universe. Okay? Not even suffering can beat Jesus. 
What a mighty promise. Take it to the bank. This is our king, friends. Jesus, the creator, who held together the nails that sliced his wrists and the beam on which he died, he ordained that for his glory, for his people. And then verse 18, look with me. Verse 18. And he is head of the body, the church. So point three is, Jesus is head of the church. Paul just talked about this climactic and epic truth that Christ is Lord over creation. And then he follows up with this, okay? So if Jesus is supreme in all things, why would he mention specifically that he's head of the church? Well, I think Paul seems to have in mind a people who, unlike the world we have, the creation we see, the people will continue to live on into the next age. Okay? So, there is a coming inheritance for all who conquer by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus conquered death by dying and redeemed a people for himself in so doing. That people is the church. That's the church. All God's people of all time, capital C, church. Those people are his. The pastor isn't the head of the church. The pope isn't. No human, no Christian, because Christ, only Christ can. And our proof, our proof of that is that the church just doesn't die, right? Christ, its head, is resurrected, very much alive, very much in charge. For thousands of years, the church continues on because its head is alive. And and yet, there is suffering in the world. And at, at present, we're, we're kind of caught between the middle of two things, right? There's the world that is broken and groaning uh, by our, our self-exalting and falling. But that's going to pass away soon. I, I admittedly can't speak to this of my own experience, but I, I watch people who have followed Jesus for for double or triple my years. And it seems like in their eyes comes a kind of exchange where we see the, the world exposed for what it is in its true colors that's temporary and flaky and gray. And then in its place coming a glorious and lasting and eternal world. Right? That's what Jesus is doing. He's making all things new. And look with me in 18 again. This is uh, partway through. We see that Jesus, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Point four, Jesus is the reconciler. Let's pan out for a minute, okay? There's a, there's a Greek word here that's translated beginning. We, we read it beginning. And that is, again, showing that Jesus is the creator, okay? It shows that he's the ruler from the start, and he's the, the first cause of things. To paraphrase John's writing, in the beginning was the word. Jesus is the word of life. He was in the beginning with God. Nothing was made without him, and in him is the life that is the light of mankind. That stuff, that's in chapter 1 of his gospel, okay? And then we go to Revelation 21, 
one of the last chapters in the Bible, we see Jesus seated on a throne, and he says, Behold, I am making all things new. It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, beginning and end. His is the first word. His is going to be the last word. Oh, and by the way, he's also firstborn from the dead. So, not only is he the, the ruler of this age, he's the ruler of the age to come. There's nothing that is better than or usurping Christ. So, praise God, right? Praise God. The Lord stands beyond the beginning, after the end of the universe, as sovereign creator. He is the first risen, the firstborn among many to rise. We, Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus is the reconciler. He brings all things back to the peace of Eden, to that perfect garden where man and woman enjoy God. At the end of the Bible, we find a a new picture of that same garden where God dwells with his people and there's a fullness of joy. And Jesus is the one who does that. See it. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in everything he might be preeminent. That he might be first. He surpasses all others. He is holy. He is God. And that's point five. Jesus is God. I read this. I think, what an obvious statement, right? Like, I'm a church kid. I work at Chick-fil-A and I'm in seminary. So, duh, Jesus is God. That's obvious. Shouldn't it be? But um, let's be real, because for many, this is a really hard truth to believe, and many just don't. Many don't believe it, and I'm, I'm not going to read into where you're at this morning, okay? You might find yourself there today, and then others of us see this, we believe it, And we think, what do we do with it? We've heard it a bunch. We believe it. What do we do? How do we hold this revelation? Well, I I, want to keep bringing it back to the word. We see, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What do we do? Well, that statement is good, and we also need to feel that in a way it's very terrible. What do I mean by that? Well, how do we, as small creatures, approach something as glorious and magnificent as this? What do we do when we come face to face with God? Jesus is God. What do we do? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record part of Jesus' life where he takes a few of his buddies that go up the mountain. The appearance of his face is just changed. And then they find themselves standing before the Son of God radiating divine glory. Well, okay, so they, they start standing and then they're floored. 
They collapse in fear because it's a fearful thing to meet what is holy. And in verse 20, the text says that God is reconciling all things to himself, so he's bringing everything face to face. Jesus made peace by his blood, yes. And like in the aftermath of what is a cosmic battle, we can either willingly kneel before our king now, or we will kneel as a people who have been conquered. As Richard Chin puts it, every person, so it's, it's you, that's me, every person will either enjoy a reconciling forgiveness from Jesus or will face reconciling judgment from Jesus. Both are, in the sense of restoring true and peaceful order, reconciliation. It's kind of like an accountant balancing the books, right? Putting everything into line as it should be. That's what Paul has in mind here. And then feel how in the text we enter another question. Verse 15 says he is, and then verse 21, and you. So read it with me. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh and by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So who are we? This is Paul talking to a church, right? So the question we should ask is, who is a Christian? Or what is a Christian? Let's pull some key words out from the mix. We see alienated, hostile, doing evil, And, like, that's what Christians were. Those words describe an enemy, right? They're true of someone who is apart from God and opposed to God. Christians were once alienated. That's what what a Christian was. A Christian is, verse 22, okay, one whom he has now reconciled. Christians are now reconciled. Paul goes on. He gives the means. So they're reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And he gives the purpose, which is for redemption, in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's what living in the image of God looks like, right? The calling is the same. And yet, notice the stark contrast between the past and the present of believers' lives. Like, they're those before and after commercials, but this is actually legit, right? So, they were enemies of Christ. Now they're together with Christ. They were hostile. Now they're holy. They were in sin, doing evil deeds, and now they're blameless above reproach. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, right? Amen to that. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Okay. Then in verse 23. Keep going here. Keep digging. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So they are continuing, and they will continue in faith. Paul fully expects this church the Colossian believers, 
He expects that they're going to continue in faith. And yet, feel, feel this gravity, uh, this weight, as he shows that faithfulness is absolutely essential to the Christian life. When the apostle penned this letter, the gospel had already been widely spread throughout the Greco-Roman world. But, of, of course, today, like, there's still a need to finish that mission, right? It's not over yet. So, there's a need to go into the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, and we see in, in that whole creation the scope. The universe is the creation, and it's waiting with pain till it is completely revamped and made new. So, friend, you are free to live faithfully. See this, that Jesus has made final peace, a a permanent peace for all those who love him. So, be baptized, or remember when you were baptized, and know that, for one, you're welcome here among his people. We're glad you're here. I'm glad to meet you. We know that the church is the expression of Jesus' sovereignty in the world, that he's really reigning, and right now that reign is, though imperfectly, it's felt in the church, right? So let's double back. What's our mission here? To be molded by God's word and motivated by God's glory so that we can make disciples throughout God's world? The call is always to worship. All of that is worship. We're going to sing in a few minutes to that and, but I, I want to bring your attention to one more thing. We know that the result of reconciliation in the text, Christ is working in believers to present us as holy and blameless before God. Now, when the Colossians read this, okay, they're thinking back to Old Testament words, Old Testament era, where priests would bring and sacrifice a perfect little lamb. No blemish, just spotless. The priest would offer that to God for a sacrifice. And here's the crazy thing. It just got flipped. When we present ourselves to the Lord as living sacrifices in Jesus, so through his death, our worship is acceptable and we live, we are made like him, without blemish. So the reality now is that the sheep live and are spotless because the shepherd died. Okay? Sheep live, the shepherd dies, and the holiness of God, only that could do this. His supreme glory, his supreme purity saw the sheep killed, the perfect sheep killed, so that we, the not perfect sheep, would be made sons, so that all might live. In Jesus, we have been reconciled with God. Again, the text, remain in the faith of the gospel. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for what you have done. Um, we, know, we know the limits of our praise And we ask that you would make the limitlessness of your glory made evident here. Lord, help us to sing with all we've got. Not that that's enough, but we know in Christ it is pleasing to you. Lord, we love you. We're thankful for your people. 
for, for your sovereignty expressed in the world. Please let your church go and make disciples of nations which have not even been touched before. Bring people, bring your people to know you. Jesus, please. We love you, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.